In March of 2009, the cover story of Time Magazine was titled, 10 Ideas That Are Changing the World Right Now. The ideas ranged from biobanks to Africa as a business destination to jobs as the new assets and even an article on mortality, the pursuit of eternal youth. Sitting number three on this list of political, economic, social, and technological trends is a theological idea the editors could not ignore. It wasn't a new idea at all. In fact, it was 500 years old. New Calvinism. The New Calvinism. The New Calvinism that even the world has to acknowledge that there is a resurgence of Calvinistic Reformed theology that is taking place. New Calvinism, or Neo-Calvinism as some were calling it. For the past two decades, there has been, as my friend Steve Lawson just said, a resurgence of Calvinistic Reformed theology. And John MacArthur has had a significant role in that movement. In June of 2014, a blog article from Mark Dever identified 10 reasons why Calvinism was making a comeback. Number eight on his list was John MacArthur and his good friend R.C. Sproul. Here's Mark Dever reading from that article. From the East Coast and the West, among Presbyterians and non-denominational types, and everything literally in between Florida and California, the teaching ministries of these two men have had a quiet, but consistently compounding effect for almost 40 years now. Okay, that's not actually Mark Dever. It's Josh Petrus, our high school pastor at Grace Community Church. But if you've ever listened to Dever, you have to admit, Petrus does the best Dever. It's a good impression. Their conferences are attended by thousands. Their books are legion. Their characters are, by God's grace, unquestioned. Certainly, each of these two men is one of the most significant teachers of hundreds, perhaps even thousands of evangelical ministers, and have been so for some decades now. Their work has been more steady than spectacular, more quiet and consistent than sudden and electrifying, more Wesley than Whitfield in their manner. But when one looks at thousands of young evangelicals who identify with the doctrines of grace, there is no doubt that behind many of them stand the ministries of these two teachers of the Word. John MacArthur and R.C. Sproul. As we examine this movement and hear John MacArthur both encourage and critique it, we're going to explore how pastors and faithful Christians in general should think about theological trends and the timelessness of truth. When good theology becomes cool, how should we respond? Should we be skeptical? critical? Should we embrace the fad and throw all our hopes and dreams into it? We tackle those questions in this episode. We're calling it MacArthur and the Calvinists. My name is Austin Duncan. I'm the director of the MacArthur Center for Expository Preaching, and this is season two of the podcast from the Center, The Entrusted, The Convictions and Legacy of John MacArthur.
To learn more about the new Calvinist resurgence, I was going to talk to one of those hip new Calvinists, ask him how he became a part of the movement, what his favorite brand of beard oil is, and if he has any regrets about not having the accent marks on his Greek word tattoo. But then, I had a better idea. Why don't we talk to an old Calvinist? Someone who has been one long before it was cool. What is Calvinism? Calvinism is um, biblical theology. It is the theology of the Bible, which centers on the majesty and sovereignty of God. Derek Thomas is not young, restless, and reformed. He is older, settled, and, well, he's definitely reformed. After all, he is the Chancellor's Professor of Systematic and Pastoral Theology at Reformed Theological Seminary. And effectively how that sovereignty of God impinges on uh, election, on uh, regeneration, on perseverance, on the story of redemption from beginning to end. But essentially, if you want to boil it down just to a a single sentence, it is the theology of the majesty and sovereignty of God. Alongside his teaching responsibilities, Dr. Thomas is the senior pastor of First Presbyterian Church of Columbia, South Carolina. Columbia was founded in 1787, and then nine years later, a group of Presbyterians, uh, and we're talking probably 500 people in the city, as, I mean, it's a brand new city. Uh, and they petitioned the legislature that it wasn't good not to have a Presbyterian church in this city because men were desecrating the Sabbath. So they founded First Press, uh, which was 225 years ago in, in 2020. There have been Calvinists at Derek Thomas's church since George Washington was the president. Like I said, he was a Calvinist long before it was trendy, which makes him much cooler than hipsters with wire rim glasses and Jonathan Edwards is my homeboy t-shirts. So the roots of all of this lie, I think, in Calvin and in his successor, Theodore Beza, uh, and then in um, English theologians like William Perkins, but by... Uh, the early 1600s, uh, Jacob Arminius, from Arminianism, uh, espoused five truths that he thought were truths, uh, the remonstrance uh, that uh, the Synod of Dort in 1618-1619 uh, thoroughly reputed. And they reputed them uh, under five points, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace and the perseverance of the saints. They were five um, truths that deliberately and specifically countered what Jacob Arminius had been teaching. He died in 10 years before the Synod of uh, Dort. But basically, it's where Calvinism and Arminianism find their greatest tension. Tulip. It's in the lily family, native to Central Asia in Turkey. It's a flower. It's also an acronym for the five points of Calvinism that Thomas just described. I asked Dr. Thomas to tiptoe through the tulips. 
to give us a crash course in the five points of Calvinism. I think you'll find it very helpful. Well, the T stands for total depravity. Uh, not that we are as sinful as we possibly can be, but that there isn't an aspect of our faculty, whether we're thinking of the mind or the will or the affections or the body, uh, every aspect of our faculty, uh, what constitutes us as human beings is tainted by sin and therefore renders us unable to save ourselves. That because of that sin issue, there is, there is no amount of good work that we can do to merit salvation. The U stands for unconditional election. That election is something that God does uh, before he creates human beings. Uh, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. Now there are nuances as to how that is understood between Calvinists, but it is a robust doctrine of election, that God chooses the elect before the foundation of the world. The L is somewhat um, unhelpful, in, in, and particular redemption would be, would be better. What did the cross of Christ achieve? Did it achieve the possibility of salvation, or did it actually achieve salvation? Does the cross actually redeem? Does it actually satisfy the demands of divine justice? Because if it does, then there's nothing and no one that can prevent those for whom Jesus died from being saved. When you believe in Jesus, you get, you get the whole Christ and everything that he has achieved for you. And it is the basis uh, of the assurance that our sins are truly, truly forgiven. Not just the possibility of forgiveness, but actual forgiveness. Irresistible grace. We can think of it in terms of another expression, effectual calling, which is a, a doctrine that goes all the way back to Augustine, that in order to come to Christ, we need the power uh, of the Holy Spirit to draw us to Christ, that we are incapable in and of ourselves to, um, to come to Christ. We have to be effectually called by the Holy Spirit. The perseverance of the saints, uh, a, a promise uh, that that which God has begun, he will complete unto the day of Jesus Christ. Arminianism tended to focus on free will, but if you can choose Jesus today, you can unchoose him tomorrow. So Calvinism expressed the opposite, uh, that those who God effectively and effectually brings to himself, he can never cast out. So there, there is implicit then within effectual calling the guarantee uh, of eternal life. The five points of Calvinism, the doctrines of grace, they were first put together not long after the Reformation. And of course, the doctrines they catalog are all over the Bible. Yet when John MacArthur was growing up in a pastor's home, Calvinism wasn't talked about. Uh, I never had a conversation about that with my grandfather <clears throat> or my father. Um, the, the word never came up. Um, they, they taught the Bible. They believed in the security of the believer. They believed in praying for the lost, but it, it never got defined like the doctrines of grace. So that was really outside my sphere. And, and then I went to college, a 
primarily to, to play football, and I ended up at a free Methodist school where, you know, we were told you can lose yourself. I mean, it was full-on uh, Wesleyan Arminian, so I just sort of endured it. Um, I went to Bob Jones and and uh, for a couple of years and then to that other college for the final years of my, my education, and in neither place was Calvinism ever even discussed. The, the roots of uh, Bob Jones were Methodist. By the time MacArthur got to seminary, the little he had heard about Calvinism wasn't appealing to him. Calvinism, to me, was represented primarily by a small, small group of people who sort of contemplated their own naval, wore black suits, and went to an Orthodox Presbyterian church and and um, had no interest in evangelism or you know reaching people. Calvinism was a very tight kind of um, cold, uh, mechanical kind of uh, form of Christianity in my mind. So what happened between the mid-1960s when John MacArthur is not a Calvinist and 2014 when Mark Dever says he's a central influence on the new Calvinism? How did we get from the irrelevance of Calvinists have no interest in evangelism to this? Men don't choose God. God chooses men. His is the choice. And this. And I have often said, if you believe the Bible, you believe in predestination. If you believe the Bible, you believe in God choosing who would be saved. If you believe the Bible, you believe that God determined who would be saved and determined that that salvation would reach its final conclusion when they are glorified in heaven. If you believe the Bible, you believe that God effectually calls those that he chooses and grants them faith. And also this. I think it is uh, everywhere in Scripture. It is inescapable. Everywhere in Scripture, God is designated clearly and revealed to be sovereign. I don't think it's a question of revelation. I think it's a question of comprehension. Uh, the Bible is crystal clear that God is the ruler, that God rules, that God does what he will, that no one can thwart his purpose, no one can stop his hand, that all things work together for good, that he is orchestrating all of human history and everything in it. Scripture says that. Uh, like, like other things, we can know that that's what the Bible says, but not fully comprehend how that works out. Or, or why things are the way they are, if that is in fact true. But as to the, the truthfulness of it, it is crystal clear in Scripture. There's no equivocating on that. There are countless examples of John extolling the doctrine of God's sovereignty throughout his preaching ministry. So when was it that John became a Calvinist, and how? I guess I was, I was a, kind of an emerging Calvinist when I was in seminary just from the things I was reading and from my, my study of the Bible. But it was when I came to Grace Church and began to do the exposition of the Scripture that the doctrines of grace, and I'd rather call them that than Calvinism, just began to overwhelm me. I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't avoid them. They were everywhere. They were everywhere on the pages of Scripture. It didn't matter where you were in Scripture. It was clear that God was sovereign, that salvation was monergistic, God divinely saved people, that he produced repentance, faith as a result of uh, regeneration, and 
And so by the time I got to the book of Romans, everything just completely unfolded with clarity to me. So in the early years of Bible exposition, I, I tested Calvinism against every single passage that I studied. And as you know, my way of preaching the Bible is primarily dependence on cross-references. I go from here to there to here to there, and so I'm, I'm traversing the Bible constantly every week of my life. And it just literally became crystal clear to me that the doctrines of grace as we know them are what the Bible teaches unequivocally. So I, I really solidly landed there just from the week in and week out exposition of Scripture. There's a lesson there for all of us. Your convictions, your theology, need to be based on the Word of God. They can't come from a movement or a theological system. Convictions formed by fads always fade. I became a Calvinist because the Bible didn't give me an option. It didn't give me any option. No option at all. A couple decades into John's ministry, his expository preaching and Calvinistic doctrine is causing him to lose friends. He doesn't quite fit in the fundamentalist, devotional-style Christianity of his childhood. He actually has a lot more in common with the Reformed world, but he has no connections there until a man named R.C. Sproul called. This doctrine of predestination is not a peripheral, tangential, secondary matter of concern for biblical Christianity. The Lord, in His kindness, uh, allowed my some of my preaching to cross the path of R.C. Sproul, and he invited me to a Ligonier conference. And that is the first time I was ever at any event which was defined as you know, Calvinists and Reformed guys. And I, I was really a, an alien in that setting in terms of my history, but not in terms of my understanding of Scripture. And Sproul, in his inimitable, almost impish way, gave me the doctrine of election as the subject. And I couldn't believe he would do that. Because, you know, I, I thought at the time he probably invented the doctrine of election. So why, why is he doing this? But it was just like him to throw me to the wolves and give me the ultimate test. And so I stood up and he was on the front row with his shoes off, wiggling his toes. And I was waxing eloquent on the doctrine of election, hoping that I got it right in a way that would please him. And when that happened that relationship was sealed. So my, my coming out, if you, when I came out of the uh, semi-Calvinist, quasi-Calvinist closet, was at a Ligonier conference. <laughs> I didn't quote any theologian. I didn't give any theological argument. I went from passage to passage to passage to passage to passage. I, I think I went through like 10 Bible passages to make the case for the doctrine of election and it was purely an exegetical approach. So it was the Bible that brought me to that clear understanding. And since that time, continued study of the Bible has secured and validated that. So John MacArthur becomes recognized as one of the most prominent Calvinists in America. 
and he plows through book after book, teaching verse by verse, pointing out the doctrines of grace where he finds them. An entire generation listening can't help but see the same Calvinism that John couldn't avoid. I became a Christian and then moved down to Southern California and started listening to John on the radio. This is Andrew Gutierrez. He's an alumnus of the Master's Seminary, pastoring at Canyon Bible Church in Prescott, Arizona. I didn't know who he was. Uh, All I knew was I now was excited about the Bible and learning about what it meant. Uh, So coming from an environment without much of a theological background, I had no idea what type of church to look for. So I'm listening to John on the radio. I find out that he's actually 20 minutes from where I live. So I start going to Grace Church. And I'm just enamored with what the Bible means. And here's this guy known for teaching the Bible. So I trust him. And then I start hearing about the sovereignty of God and salvation. I never heard that before. And this is all in the early you know, days of the um, Reformed resurgence. And so... I've got not just John, but guys that John talks about that I'm going to start reading. So I start reading Edwards. I start listening to Piper and things like that. So I go from some nominal Christian background, no theology, to being excited about the Bible. And then he's talking about the sovereignty of God and salvation. And he's and he's showing me that from the Bible. And, uh, you know, as you know, like everybody, you see it everywhere in the scriptures, all over the place. So I'm seeing this. And it's not just that it's affecting my head. It literally changed my life. Seeing the sovereignty of God, big God, it changed my worship. It makes me want to tell people the gospel. It uh, eventually led to me wanting to go into full-time pastoral ministry. John's preaching turned Andrew into a Calvinist. It did the same for another young pastor, Justin Harris. I did not start off as a Calvinist in any way, shape, or form. I grew up in uh, and was ordained in the Free Will Baptist denomination, which its very essence is contra doctrines of grace. It was actually established in response to the preaching of George Whitfield. Justin, another alumnus of the Master's Seminary, has pastored Faith Bible Church in Naples, Florida since 2016. I knew what Calvinism was, and I knew that I didn't want to be one. Uh, It was definitely the big enemy, uh, the thing that we wanted to stay away from. Uh, But at that time, I was captivated by the authority of Scripture. I wanted to be an expositional preacher. I knew that the authority was in the text. Uh, Some of my upbringing just made that really clear. And uh, that's how I found MacArthur. I just, I knew that he had some Calvinist, you know, kind of background or whatever, but I just knew that the guy explained the Bible. So what I was doing was I was listening to him like on podcast and he's just working his way through text. But at some point, Grace to You like this series on what they called, this was brilliant, the doctrines of grace. Now, they didn't call it Calvinism. If they would have called it Calvinism, I would have not listened to it. So MacArthur's teaching on these doctrines of grace and he doesn't use the pejorative terms that I'm used to looking out for. Like his first one was on... um, the oh uh, absolute inability he didn't say total depravity i knew to look out for that he just taught a lesson on absolute inability well by the time he was done explaining this from the scripture i'm like oh yeah we can't save ourselves there's nothing we can do you know in this i mean he changed all the terms on me and before i knew it i'm at the end of a series on calvinism fully convinced 
uh, because he never used the words that I was looking out for. He just went with the scriptures. An untold number didn't come to Calvinism through a creed, confession, or the works of Calvin himself. They came to it through John's preaching because he gave it to them through the text. When someone begins to understand God's absolute sovereignty, it does more than change a theological position. It transforms a life. John Piper, one of the most prominent voices in the New Calvinism movement, knows this very well. Here he is at the final Together for the Gospel conference earlier this year, talking about how Calvinism transformed him. I stood in front of James Morgan, Everybody knows this story, right? Outside the systematic theology class where he was teaching on Calvinism. And I get in his face, like this close, and I say, Dr. Morgan. This is a great story, and he's told it a bunch of times. At this moment in the story, Piper pulls one of his classic $2 pens out of his jacket pocket and drops it. I dropped it! I dropped it! God didn't drop it, I dropped it. I wrote in my blue book, this is in a systematic theology class, Romans 9 is like a tiger going around devouring free willers like me. My first love, I think, was six or seven years old. But at 22, I got to know him. I got to know him. I felt like I hardly even knew God before I was 22 years old. Compared to what I saw of God in those six months and what became of my heart and my prayer life and my passion for missions and for the Word, just no comparison with my first love. You could argue that John Piper sowed the seeds of the New Calvinism in the year 2000 at the Passion Conference. Anybody in this crowd can make a worldwide difference because it isn't you. It's what you're gripped with. But one of the really sad things about this moment right now is that there are hundreds of you in this crowd who do not want your life to make a difference. All you want is to be liked. Louis Giglio's Passion Conference, by no means a bulwark of Reformed theology, probably unintentionally introduced thousands of young people to John Piper's Calvinism. Then, starting in 2006, many of these newly Reformed-leaning Christians started gathering with each other, beginning with the biannual Together for the Gospel Conference in Louisville, Kentucky. It is a privilege to speak to you this evening. We have come together for the Gospel. Just to be clear, this is actually Mark Dever, not Josh Petrus although I can barely tell the difference. We want to raise up the banner of the gospel, to raise it up out of common concern that too much today would obscure this as the very center of our message and our mission and our ministries. One year later, D.A. Carson and Tim Keller launched another mega conference for the hip and reform. The Gospel Coalition is a group of mostly pastors who are deeply committed to the gospel as presented in the Bible. Calvinists were showing up in all kinds of places, well beyond the conservative Presbyterian denominations where they had always been. At first, all this was encouraging. The young, restless, and reform movement was focused on the gospel. 
the good news that through Jesus Christ, sinful men can be reconciled to a holy God. The New Calvinists were not only listening to men like John Piper, R.C. Sproul, and John MacArthur, they were also spending time with famous Christian dead guys like Spurgeon, the Puritans, and especially Jonathan Edwards. Early on, the, the energy was around theology, the energy was around expositional preaching, the energy was around church planting and missions, and they like all those things came together in a really unique way, in a powerful way. That's the voice of Tony Ranke. He's the author of several helpful books on technology and social media, including his recent Competing Spectacles. You might also recognize his voice from the hit podcast, Ask Pastor John. That's the other John, John Piper, not John MacArthur. Young Restless Reformed was the beginning of my ministry. Uh, I was a journalist. I was going into business, and then I felt this call towards ministry. And so if there was no Young Restless Reformed movement, there would not be a Tony Rankian ministry. I, that, that was the door for me. Tony says that one of the milestones in the Young Restless and Reform movement was a 2003 Desiring God conference about Jonathan Edwards. I was there that year. And it's where I realized that only self-loathing Calvinists would go to Minneapolis in February. The church and the world need the God-entranced vision of all things that Jonathan Edwards had is that it is so rare today and yet so necessary. Everyone ought to read Jonathan Edwards. He's helpful for the soul. He truly does give you that God-entranced vision of all things. And the early days of the young, restless, and reform movement were singularly focused on that God-entranced vision. But it wasn't too long until the movement started to lose its way. Over time, over the years, the, the fractures started to show up in that there wasn't necessarily a unity around all these doctrines. There wasn't a unity around all these practices and church planting wasn't really the driving force in, in everyone's um, trajectory. And so it just sort of slowly began to fracture and split apart to the point where you just don't have that sort of... Uh, that, that unity that we had in 2006, 2007 that I experienced so early on. I think they were attracted by the doctrine of divine sovereignty. I, I think anybody would be, but I don't think they had shed all the pragmatism. If you have a full-orbed, robust understanding of divine sovereignty, you don't have any pragmatism. I mean, you don't have any. You don't need any because you essentially have given over everything to the power and purpose of God. But I, but I don't think there was enough maturity in that movement at the time. These were young guys. They were ambitious guys. They were guys who wanted big churches. They were guys who wanted to sell a lot of books. They wanted a lot of notoriety. They wanted people downloading their sermons. They wanted to be popular. They wanted to be powerful. And, and so they... They couldn't move. They, they couldn't move from complete commitment to pragmatism to a complete commitment to divine sovereignty. So they, 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 were, they were in the middle. They were willing to embrace sovereignty but unwilling to let go of pragmatism. The new Calvinism peaked in the late 2000s, a few years after Colin Hansen's article. By 2010, 
TGC was deeply committed to theological and political moderation and incessant movie reviews with loose Christological connections. My favorite appeared recently entitled, We Need to Talk About Bruno. Life isn't some cartoon musical where you sing a little song and your insipid dreams magically come true. So let it go. Also by that time, the movement had acquired new leaders, men with a lot of the pragmatic approach John just talked about. The Bible uses various words to talk about this, such as predestination, predestined, choose, elect, ordain. This is Mark Driscoll. I didn't know the man. He's the fella who crashed the strange fire conference in 2013. For more on that wild incident, see Season 1, Episode 6. Security did not confiscate their books. All of which indicates that the decision of who will be in heaven forever with Jesus was determined, as Ephesians 1 says, before the foundation of the world, before time began, some people were destined, their destiny was predetermined to be with Jesus in heaven, saved as Christians forever. At that time, Driscoll embraced Calvinism. He defended the doctrines of grace in his books. The young, restless, and reformed crowd took interest in his panache for MMA, IPA, and TMI, that's too much information, of the explicit kind in his sermons. He was a regular speaker at reformed conferences. Several of his rants became internet sensations, but not always for the right reasons. Who do you think you are? Driscoll introduced a crass, in-your-face version of Calvinism that was particularly appealing to immature young men. I don't think Driscoll could have um, could have found anything to enhance his ministry better than the sovereignty of God, because his whole ministry was about making macho men. I mean that that they would they had they acknowledge that he acknowledges that. I mean the target for everything he did was men. He was trying to make rough, tough, manly men uh, every which way possible and uh, guys that would take charge and, you know, live large and, and all of this. And the, the sovereignty of God seemed to me like the ultimate model for him. This is, this is God-like, you know, get a grip, I'm in charge, this is what we're doing, this is the way we're going. So I, I think that was kind of the ultimate justification for the macho emphasis in his ministry was that that's what God's like. He's in charge. And alongside this new, edgy, macho Christianity, there was a focus on growth, a pragmatic approach that Driscoll inherited from the previous generation. Uh, today's a great day. It's actually the two-year anniversary of our Shoreline Campus, which was an experiment in multi-campus that was wildly successful. And so now we've got uh, Ballard, and we've got Shoreline, and West Seattle, and Wedgwood, and the east side, and uh, we're getting ready to launch Mars Hill downtown coming up here in a month or so as well. Driscoll talked about numbers all the time. Growth was a central part of his ministry and his identity. Uh, tell you as well, one thing uh, you can continue to be in uh, prayer for us as a church is just the uh, 
the ongoing growth is we're straining to, to handle all the people that God has brought us, and we're very grateful for that. The very fact that he had the impact that he did, and he influenced so many guys and started Acts 29, and it went so far, proves the superficiality of the Young Restless Reform movement. Because if the Young Restless Reform were really, really reformed, you know, their hero would have been Sinclair Ferguson, not Mark Driscoll. Driscoll wasn't alone in his quest for influence. As the new Calvinism expanded, men like James MacDonald and Tullian Chavigian, Billy Graham's grandson, became prominent voices in the movement. They were chatty, relevant, hip, funny, culturally savvy, and unqualified. Driscoll resigned from his church in the fall of 2014 after being accused of abusive behavior. McDonald was fired in 2019 for participating in, quote, conduct harmful to the best interests of the church, close quote, and Tullian had an extramarital affair that left Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church in 2015 reeling. They, they want to say God is sovereign. They believe in the sovereignty of God, but they don't want to submit to his word. Um, they, they're rebels. And they want to be in full rebellion operation as if they are sovereign, as if they're mirror, mirroring God rather than submitting to him. So sanctification is the loving, willful submission of all my faculties to to the Lord Jesus Christ. And it means my thoughts and my, my words and my actions um, and my ministry. You, you don't see that. So there was, um, there was a usefulness in the notion of the sovereignty of God. And, and they, they, you know, it basically cancels out all the problems that you don't want to deal with, right? Oh, God's in charge. God's in charge. I don't have to worry about that. God's in charge. But there was never the sense that God is totally in charge of my life which I yield up in every aspect to him. You could see that because of the ungodly speech, the ungodly attitudes, the ungodly approaches to ministry, the browbeating, bashing, the cruelty, the unkindness, the domination, all of the things that are ugly um, reflected that there was not a heart submitted to the Lord, and that's what sanctification is. I've heard John MacArthur say again and again that his main concern with the young, restless, and reformed movement isn't the theology. It's not even the quest for cultural relevance. It's the lack of sanctification. It's the anger, the pride, the lust that defined Driscoll, McDonald, Tullian, and others. Those cannot be the marks of a minister, no matter how much influence they have or what set of doctrines they claimed to believe. John MacArthur warned against a fashionable, worldly, non-sanctified version of Calvinism in a series of articles in 2011 published at Grace to Use website. The title, Grow Up, Settle Down, Keep Reforming, Advice 
for the young, restless, reformed. Here is the advice John gave. Don't squander your good theology and your opportunity to make an impact by selling out to stylishness, self-promotion, or mere popularity, thus guaranteeing your ministry a short shelf life and no lasting influence. The great leaders you admire from past generations, the architects of the Reformation theology you say you love, do not occupy that heroic stance in our thinking because of their wardrobe, cultural savvy, musical style, or ability to identify with the behavior and tastes of the unconverted. What has given them an exalted place in our thinking is purely their clarity of doctrine, the carefulness of their exposition, the way they exemplified virtue, and the zeal with which they served our triune God. In short, they were wholeheartedly committed to the truth of Scripture above every other value, goal, or pastime. In other words, their influence endures precisely because they transcended the shifting preoccupations of human style. Now let's be completely candid. Many, perhaps most evangelical celebrities from the past half century or so, will never be remembered like the Reformers because they will pass away with their own self-styled faddishness. Whatever you do, don't let that happen to you. In recent years, the new Calvinism has splintered even further. Leaders of the movement have disagreed over how to interact with the culture. Some want more outspoken leadership and activism on social issues like race and politics. Others see dangers in that approach and instead call the church to faithfulness in preaching, evangelism, and personal holiness. But even as factions form and the movement loses influence, there's still much to thank the Lord for. Today, there are more pastors preaching the absolute sovereignty of Christ, not just in salvation, but in all of life, especially in difficult trials. That is when God's sovereignty becomes a truly glorious doctrine. I think the thing that we can bring that early um, YRR had was that big God theology. And I think we can we can continue to pass that on. John Newton is one of my favorite historical voices in church history. And uh, he was he was a five-point Calvinist. I mean, he was Calvinist all the way. And uh, somebody asked him why he didn't preach Calvinism more in his sermons, because it doesn't appear very often in his preached sermons at all. And he said, well, I, I try to lay out some of the, the key features of Calvinism in expositions, so it's there. But I've found that it usually won't take root in a person's heart until they approach suffering. And that's when Calvinism clicks for people. And so I've always looked to his model for that in that that cage stage Calvinism. You can go out and preach Calvinism, you know, with all your guts. But the, the fact is a lot of people aren't going to understand Calvinism until personal suffering hits. The doctrine of God's sovereignty is um, a comfort because you know that he's in charge, he's in control. But we also are taught that our God is a father. Uh, he cares. The son cares. Uh, the spirit's a comforter. So it, it's the full manifestation of who God is that I believe is the comfort for the believer, not just an aspect of his character. He, he is a whole being and he is in control and he cares. So it's the sovereignty of God uh, coupled with the the other passages that talk about his, his full character that I think gives comfort. I'm happy to live in the sovereignty of God with the suffering that is there. You can deal with anything in life if you have that sense of what Scripture 
reveals that God is in charge. I can live joyfully in a in a in a world whatever the issues are in that world knowing that a good God for his own glory is managing every single thing that's going on. In God's kindness, thousands have embraced the doctrines of grace in recent years. And those truths have strengthened them in their walk with Christ and in their journey through suffering. So even if the new Calvinism continues to splinter and is no longer an idea that's changing the world, we can thank God for its resurgence. And we can certainly thank God that he used John MacArthur's faithful teaching of the Bible to point so many to the doctrines of grace. And we can listen eagerly to John's advice for the movement. Grow up, settle down, keep reforming, be sanctified. Sanctification is a marvelous word. It's a familiar theological, biblical word that all Christians understand. But the doctrine of sanctification, the truth of sanctification, is, has become uh, unpopular in our time. There has been much, much talk about the doctrine of election, divine sovereign election, how God has chosen sinners before the foundation of the world to belong to him and to enter into eternal heaven. And he wrote their name in the book of life before the foundation of the world. We celebrate the doctrine of election. There has been much talk about the doctrine of justification, which is where God in time declares a sinner righteous by virtue of imputing to him the righteousness of Christ. And that is the experience of conversion, salvation, regeneration, new birth, new life. We are committed and we celebrate loudly the doctrines of election and justification. And we're happy as well to, to celebrate the doctrine of glorification, that great reality that will be the culmination of God's redemptive purpose when we are in heaven and we are like Christ and we are in the midst of eternal joy and peace and bliss and worship and service. But the doctrine that has fallen into the greatest disuse is this doctrine of sanctification. And yet, sanctification is the applicable doctrine to our entire life as believers on earth. What is sanctification? The word means to be separated, to be separated. It is the lifelong work of God in every believer to separate us from sin. That is sanctification. It is what the Holy Spirit is doing now in our lives. Nothing is more important for us to understand than this work of sanctification. Again, the truth of sanctification is what defines the work of the Spirit in our lives from justification to glorification, which means from the moment of our salvation until we enter heaven. If there's anything that we ought to know, understand, and be committed to, it would be sanctification. And that is expressed in Paul's words where he says, I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you, filled out in you, so that 
You are like Christ. I settle for nothing less. Thanks for listening to Season 2 of the MacArthur Center Podcast. In our next episode, we'll find out what happened when John MacArthur and Mother Teresa met in Calcutta, India. No, that's not the start of a bad joke. We'll also hear why R.C. Sproul was standing on a table in Florida and what that has to do with the Roman Catholic Church. Tune in next time for The Entrusted, The Convictions and Legacy of John MacArthur. The Entrusted is produced by Austin T. Duncan, Corey Williams, and Jeremy Vuolo. Our editors are Habib Tanus and Cody Big Daddy Signore, who somehow edited this podcast and welcomed a new child into the world. Congrats, Cody. We're grateful for Derek Thomas, Tony Ranke, Andrew Gutierrez, and Justin Harris for their contributions to the episode. For more information about the MacArthur Center for Expository Preaching, go to macarthurcenter.org. And to learn more about the Master's Seminary, go to tms.edu. ATD, out. Brother Pastor, I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of the podcast. But I must ask, why are you still listening? When it is so obvious that the episode is now over. Friend, if you're here, and I'm assuming that you are, it is time to listen to the next episode.